All of it is supported by Missouri, makers of handcrafted jewelry that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Missouri has you covered. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is all of it. Take a minute to think about the impact Michael Jordan has had on basketball. Throughout his career, he set record after record for scoring, was named MVP five times, was inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame twice. And more than 15 years after he retired, the silhouette of him dunking is still instantly recognizable and sells billions of dollars in shoes. In a new documentary series produced by ESPN and Netflix, director Jason Hare captures not just Michael Jordan's final season with the Chicago Bulls, but his entire career. The Last Dance airs on Sundays until May 17th and has dominated Twitter conversations, generating memes like this one, which is a clip from How I Met Your Mother. You're out of your mind. There is no way that LeBron will ever be Jordan. Nobody will ever be Jordan, okay? Okay, LeBron's a better rebounder and passer. Will you let me finish? Can you, can you let me finish? Call me when LeBron has six championships. Is that your only argument? It's the only argument I need, Sean! <laughs> the first two episodes of the series set a record of their own with an average of 6.1 million viewers tuning in to ESPN to watch. We welcome Jason Hare to the show. Jason, thanks for joining us on all of it. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I'm curious about this. Your production schedule got pushed up in the biggest way. This was supposed to start around uh, the NBA finals. For you, practically, as a producer, what did that mean? Yeah, June 2nd was supposed to be the, the premiere date, and they were going to air it on off nights during the NBA finals over the course of uh, a week or two. Um, and then when the shutdown happened, um, everyone kind of looked at each other and said, let's try and get this thing out as quickly as possible. So, there, there were two factors, really, that were really affected. One, one was a uh, technological factor. We're going from multi-million dollar facilities to our own apartments. Wow. And um, that just made everything much, much more tedious to, uh, to do as far as communicating with editors. I can walk into one of five or six offices that we had in our initial uh, edit facility and, and check on what they're doing and try out a new song at the moment and see something real time. You know, let's try this shot here. Let's try that shot there. Anytime we want to do something like that or experiment with an idea, now you have to perform the edit, uh, export the, the uh, sequence, upload it. They send it to me. It's just, a, you know, the zip drives and all kinds of things. I'm learning a lot of stuff because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, that literate in, in technology. But luckily we have an incredible crew and a lot of people who knew exactly how to adjust the workflow. And we had uh, world-class editors who happened to have world-class edit facilities in their apartments scattered throughout New York. So that was um, challenging but seamless um, because we, we didn't have any time to lose. And then just the collaborative aspect of being able to walk into someone's office and sit there and, you know, toss a literal ball back and forth and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Let's try mm-hmm. this. Hey, what if we put this story here? That's lost now because it's just Zoom meetings and, and, Twitter and uh, uh, text threads and email chains. And that's a much more difficult way to uh, to go about the creative process. But I am, uh, like I said, our crew is absolutely incredible, and I'm proud to say that I don't think we've lost an ounce of quality in these final episodes that we're doing from our homes. Why do you think people have just really 
plugged into this series? Well, I think that, that there would have been high viewership anyway just because of Michael and because of how captivating uh, this team was. You know, mm-hmm. you, had, you had a cast of characters that a Hollywood casting agent uh, couldn't put together on their best day. You had, you had Batman and Michael and Robin and Scotty, and then you had the Joker coming in as, as Dennis Rodman, and then the sage wizard and, and Phil Jackson, who was kind of in charge of this whole thing, and he was the one keeping the egos together, and then Phil had his own rivalry with the front office, and that was its own story. So it was a multi-layered story, and we certainly had a lot of, uh, a lot of material to work with. But I think especially in these times, um, I'm proud of the depth to which we go in the series, but it's it's not, you know, it's not heavy. It's not something where we're tackling, you know, difficult issues, and, and it's not hard to watch. This is this is a, a, a nostalgic trip for a lot of people mm-hmm. to to revisit what they enjoyed, and and uh, oftentimes to revisit with their children or with their parents what they enjoyed, and and to bring people together. And sports at its best uh, is a connector. And we've lost so much connection these days, especially, you know, in the sports world with a lack of any sports. So this is something that people can connect about and they can argue like that clip that you just played. They can argue about that. It's, it's, it's innocuous. It's not people actually being mean to each other, but it's just a way to connect and discuss something. So I think there's safety and nostalgia. There's warmth. There's happiness. There's, there's reminding you of good memories with your family and your friends. And that's what this series hopefully is bringing to people. Oh, sir, I have never been more popular with my hoops-loving son who plays basketball every day as when I brought, was able to click into the screeners for this program. <laughs> he has never been that interested in my job ever. <laughs> my, guess, my guess is Jason Hare, director of The Last Dance on ESPN. And actually, listeners, if you want to join in on the conversation, are you watching The Last Dance? Were you watching these games back in the 90s? Do you have a new perspective on Jordan or on Rodman or Pippen, any of any of the players, 646-435-7280 is our number, 646-435-7280. Or you can tweet to us at all of it, WNYC. I want to ask you one more question about sort of atmosphere around the doc, and then we'll get into some of the details. I'm curious if you think the tragic death of Kobe Bryant has had on the film and on people's desire to, to know more about athletes or think more about superstar athletes as people, you know, when he, when he pops up in the dock, it is a little bit, it's a little bit sad and shocking. I think that, um, prior to Kobe's passing, um, there was more of a proclivity to argue about greatness to say this person's greater than this person. Kobe's greater than Michael or, Kobe's not as great as Michael because he stole all his moves, or, or LeBron is, is, is a greater player than both of them, but Bill Russell has more rings. I think now, after Kobe's death, it, it, it was uh, sobering for a lot of fans, and, and, and for a while there, um, and I think that can continue to now because of the environment that we're in. It's just a less cynical environment. Instead of arguing, people have more of a proclivity to celebrate greatness, Um and I think that that has brought about more of an appreciation of Kobe. It, it, it's, you know, it's the classic, you know, to tell, tell people uh, what you feel about them or how you feel there. Um, and, you know, by the time Kobe was gone, we couldn't celebrate him the way that he deserved to be celebrated. So I think that the, 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 the tragedy uh, that befell him um, resulted in kind of a softening of a lot of the people, uh, sports fans' hard stances on who was better than who. It's not about who's better than who. It's just about celebrating a handful of great athletes and, 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 um, and connecting that way. Well, let's get into the film. So there was a film crew that was following 
the Bulls from 97 and 98 season, and they had this unprecedented access. How did you get access to that film? And I also loved your what your initial thoughts were when you first watched the first couple of frames of it. Well, as far as the access to it, um, the decision to film that team was made when I was in college. Uh, I, w- I was watching those games at home, and I was you know, or in a dorm with my friends, and I was unaware that, that a film crew was even embedded with them. Um, and then it became, you know, I got into the business in, in the late 90s, and, and it became um, this kind of urban legend among hmm. production people that I heard that the NBA embedded themselves and that there's hundreds of hours of footage that no one's ever seen before and no one will ever see without Michael's permission. Well, those legends were true. And um, the condition upon which they were able to film uh, Adam Silver, who is now the commissioner, but was then the president of NBA Entertainment, came to Michael, pitched the idea, and said, here's the deal. Without your involvement, participation, and sign-off, we will, no one will ever see these films. So worst-case scenario, you have the best home movies of all time. And Michael agreed to, to let them in. And the green lighting in this project was contingent upon Michael's agreement to participate in his, uh, his okay for the release of the tapes. And, and you'd have to ask Michael why that never occurred until 2016. But finally, in 2016, he agreed um, that he would participate and that it was time for people to, uh, to see these tapes and to have the story told. And as far as my, you know, I, I soon after I was um, first approached about possibly directing this, I asked for permission to go to um, Secaucus, New Jersey, which is where the, the, the tapes live in the NBA Entertainment Library. And they, it was kind of under lock and key, and it was mm-hmm. very, um, very Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, they, they, they <laughs> take you down this hallway, and they put me in a room, and, and they just let me kind of live with the, the footage in there. And someone had gone through and, and picked out the best stuff of, of, you know, hundreds of hours. They picked out three hours of it. So I just sat there for three hours with my jaw dropped, because this is, you know, as a sports fan, uh, it's one thing. As a filmmaker, it's another. And as, and as both it's like, you know, it's a dream come true. So we had the holy grail of, of sports footage here because there was such a mystique around Michael back then. You, you, we're used today to seeing these athletes out of uniform, uh, out of the arena, in their homes sometimes. We know what LeBron's kitchen looks like. We know what some of these guys' backyards look like and what kind of cars they drive. And it's great that we're given that much access today, uh, but it just didn't exist back then. There was no social media then. So if you saw Michael Jordan out of uniform, that was captivating even the most mundane things, because he was such a superstar, his scarcity uh, just increased his mystique exponentially. So, you know, before Michael Jordan, arrival shots at arenas didn't exist. We take that as a given now Mm. that anytime there's a game, you're going to see Russell Westbrook or Kevin Durant or someone walking down the hallway towards the locker room when they come on the air. Those didn't exist, exist before Michael, because people were so hungry for any image they could get of Michael that him merely pulling up to the arena, getting out of the car, and walking to the locker room was considered must-see TV. So he changed the game in so many ways, and his fingerprints are, are all over our culture today. So to see the genesis of that was really, uh, it was really quite a privilege. Let's get a call in here. Antonio is calling us on line two, and he is calling us from Bayside. Hi, Antonio. Thanks for calling all of it. Hi, Allison. How are you? Love the show. Um, Thanks. I had an interesting question, considering that um, Michael Jordan never got out of the Eastern Conference Finals without Scottie Pippen, and Scottie Pippen never got out of like a West, like any kind of conference final. Like when he was with Portland, the f- the furthest he got was um, seven, Game Seven against the Lakers against Kobe Bryant and Shaq. But Game Seven, nonetheless, 
And, you know, uh, there have been tons of like conversations about the greatness of Scottie Pippen. Is he Mm -hmm. just a second banana? I believe that he is not because, you know, we can look at it, him shutting down Magic Johnson in their first title run, uh, the dream team, how he like just was prolific. He has like eight defensive, all NBA teams. It's like sometimes like the media overlooks all these things. And it's not like he's just like a second banana. I mean, he worked really hard. Obviously, you know, I'm a Scottie Pippen. Yeah. Well, you know, what's so, interesting, Antonio, if, if you've seen it, there's a lot about Scottie Pippen in the doc. And Jason, one of the big issues you go into was how, and you have to say poorly compensated in quotes, <laughs> because he made millions of dollars, but the how out of balance his compensation was for what he contributed to that team. Yeah, I mean, he, he signed a very conservative contract in 1991 because, uh, as we get into, uh, he came from abject poverty, and there were 14 people under one roof in, in uh, what amounted to a shack in, in, um, in rural Arkansas, and two of those 14 people were confined to a wheelchair. So Scotty, A, knew he had to support the, his family financially and wanted them to be comfortable, um, and B, knew that it could all go away in the blink, blink of an eye. His brother had a, an accident in gym class in school that left him a paraplegic, and his dad had a stroke in front of him at the dinner table, and both of them were confined to a wheelchair for the rest of their lives. So Scotty grew up knowing that, that it can all go away in a flash, and he wanted to be sure that he could take care of the people he needed to take care of. But I think Antonio was talking about um, about Scotty's greatness. Did, did, did you have a... a, a question there Antonio I didn't mean to cut you off and, and get into Scotty's contract oh uh, essentially I was just like from your since you spent so much time uh, putting this documentary together like would you say def- I mean I know the answer but, <laughs> but I would like to know your opinion like <laughs> that was like, awesome Antonio <laughs> what do you think Jason what's your opinion what is the question though the question is Scotty's greatness as oh, compo- um, being overshadowed. you know I think that Michael himself would tell you as he did in the doc, that that without Scottie Pippen, there's, anytime you talk about Michael Jordan, you should talk about Scottie Pippen. And you're right that Michael didn't win a ring without Scottie ever. Um, and the same could be said of, of of Scottie for Michael. But when they came back from the Dream Team in 1992, when when they you know just ran roughshod over the rest of the world, Michael Jordan called Phil Jackson to check in that summer and said that um, what he learned over overseas in Barcelona was that Scottie's the second best player on the planet. Um, with himself, of course, being uh, number one. Um, but I think that he op- opened a lot of eyes during that summer. And then, But you'll see as the series goes on, Antonio, that um, it's not just about ability um, if you're going to be the alpha in the locker room. So when Michael goes away for his baseball hiatus, Scotty is, you know, he's elevated to alpha dog status in that locker room, and it's not as easy as it seems. And some people are cut out for it, and, and some are not. So Scotty was a fascinating character, and, and I was glad that we, we got the time with him that we did, and we had the material that we did to, uh, to go into his story pretty deep throughout the 10 hours. My guest is Jason Hare, director of The Last Dance on ESPN. We need to take a quick break. We'll have more with Jason. This is all of it. This is all of it. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest is Jason Hare, director of The Last Dance which is on ESPN. It is the must-watch series of the past few weeks. So I do want to point out that the film isn't just about what happens on the court. We learn a lot of behind-the-scenes moments and issues, the dynamics between management and coaches and players. 
you know, it was so interesting to to see the late Jerry Krause, the Bulls general manager, and his determination to get rid of head coach Phil Jackson at the end of the 98 season, even though Michael Jordan said he wouldn't play for any other coach. What did you want to explore about those dynamics? Well, it's a shame that I couldn't have spoken to Jerry myself because I had so many questions for him, and he was such a, a linchpin for this entire story. Um and, and, and the way that it unfolded, but he passed away before we started rolling cameras on this project. Um, you know, Jerry is, is Pat Riley talks about the disease of more, um, mm. which is when, when, when you win one, um, every, everybody thinks that they deserve more, more money, more adulation, more credit, more playing time. Uh, and with Jerry, it came down to credit. He was very um, proud of the fact that he had put all the pieces in place. Michael was there when Jerry got there in 1985, but Michael was the only piece of that puzzle that won all those titles, uh, personnel-wise, that was there. And Jerry uh, orchestrated, engineered, architected all of those teams, put the right people around Michael, and, and made some really gutsy uh, draft picks and, and trade decisions and, and um, really put his reputation on the line several times. The problem with Jerry is is he's not a people person. He's not uh, he's not camera friendly, and, and he's not a guy who's going to get get out there. and And, and uh, he's not a fan favorite. So Michael's a hero, and there has to be a villain. and And Jerry was perceived uh, by some to this day as as that villain because he was the guy who made the decision to tell Phil Jackson that he was not going to come back. He could go eighty two and zero in that final season. He told Phil, "You're not coming back here." Jerry and Phil's relationship was lengthy and fraught. They had known each other for decades because Phil, when he was in college, Jerry scouted him for the Washington mm-hmm. Bullets to come play for that team. And, and he really plucked Phil from coaching obscurity. Phil was about to leave basketball um, and go get his law degree, and he couldn't get a job in coaching. And, and Phil and uh, Jerry is the one who was persistent about getting him an assistant coaching job because he saw something in Phil. Phil eventually rose up through the ranks, became head coach, won six titles for Jerry, and I think they both both felt that the other person owed uh, the other a debt of gratitude. Um, and, you know, both of them were right and, and both of them were, were stubborn and, and wrong in some ways. David Halberstam, I thought, said it best when he said that um, Jerry deserved more credit than he got, but felt that he deserved more than he truly did. Michael Jordan's competitiveness was legendary. Uh, let's listen to a clip from The Last Dance on ESPN and we can talk about it on the other side. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. If you don't want to live that regimented mentality, then you don't need to be alongside of me because I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. And if you don't get on the same level, then it's going to be hell for you. So you interviewed Michael Jordan eight hours for this series. And one of the interesting things you did during the interview, sometimes you would show him audio or parts of interviews with other players, sometimes not even the most flattering thing being said. Why did you think that was a good device to use with him? Because he doesn't know me. And... um for me, just to read off the transcript of what other people had said during our interviews um, is not going to elicit the visceral reaction that seeing the face of that person, especially if it's a rival, and Michael being as competitive as he is, all he needs to do is, is kind of sniff this person in the room. He's like a shark, and all of a sudden he just locks in. You can see it in his face. It just something comes over him, and he goes back to being that you know, prime competitive MJ. Um, Instead of you know 57 year old Michael Jordan who's been away from the game for a while, he's locked right back in. So uh, 
And also, when you're interviewing someone for eight hours, especially if they've heard every single question, there's nothing I could ask him that he hasn't been asked right. before. <laughs> right. So early on in the process, I was trying to think of what's a way that I can at least keep him entertained and stimulated. What's something that someone hasn't done with him before? So it really it just came down to it's like hanging out with my nephews, babysitting them, just toys, something to keep them them occupied. Michael was all about games and competition, and you know, so we would do just like a call and response kind of like word association thing sometimes and that would elicit some responses out of him we i would just read him certain you know newspaper clippings and, and ask him if he remembers when they were from or quiz him you know what's what's the only home stadium that that doesn't exist or still exists that you played in your rookie season things like that just to keep him uh stimulated but the the ipad was the one that was really kind of a, a time machine it was like a portal back to prime mj every time i handed that over to him so so we utilized that more as the interviews went on want to squeeze one more call in. Patricia loves the series. Patricia, why do you love the series? I love the series because it really um, allows kids from, like, I'm, a, I'm Gen Xer. It allows millennials and Gen Z to see how great Michael was. I get a little tired of the conversation about the GOAT. Clearly, Michael is better than LeBron will ever be. He transformed the game. No, he did. I've been a basketball fan. I'm in my 50s. He transformed the game in a way nobody – I didn't have the fortunate time to see Will play, but Michael not only transformed the game, he transformed marketing. He transformed global appeal. He's the reason that basketball is so big in China and other places. He is something LeBron will never be. We need to wrap up because Jason has got a ton of interviews and I don't want to bust somebody else's interview. I know you're up against a hard out. My guest has been Jason Hare, director of The Last Dance on ESPN. Congratulations, Jason. Patricia is pulling no punches. I'm yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love New Yorkers. We, they yeah. know. Thanks Jason, so much thank- for having me, Allison. I appreciate it. It was fun. All of it is supported by Majuri, makers of handcrafted, ethically sourced jewelry for every day that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Missouri has taken the guesswork out of gifting, offering everything from dainty 14K solid gold pieces to pearls, diamonds, gemstones, and more. Make it personal with an engraving, or if you can't decide, check out their curated gift guide. Let them take care of the rest, gift wrapping included. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus easy returns and a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it.